Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Friday. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today we've got a great show in store for you. Our guest is Jacob Leishan from North Carolina. I've known Jacob for a few years now. He's an excellent hunter, all around great guy. He hunts a ton of states. He hunts a minimum of five states every year, and he has a very unique and detailed strategy for how he's both scouting and hunting these states that's just consistently putting him on good deer on public land. So I took a ton away from this show. There's a ton of light bulb moments that I'm going to be meshing with my own strategy this fall, and I'll be utilizing that in the future as well. I think that this was an absolutely awesome episode, jam-packed full of information. Before we get into the show, one last thing. If you're looking for any last-minute hunting gear before season, head over to LatitudeOutdoors.com, pick up what you need, and use the discount code INSESSION to save you 20% off your order. That's one word, INSESSION. You can also find that code in the description of this podcast. Thank you for listening to today's show. Let's get right into it. I just want to start out by asking you how you've been, man. You know, we haven't talked much over the last year or so, so how's everything been going for you? Uh, things are going good. I've been just primarily focused a lot on work. I had a great season last year. I was really excited about and, you know, came out of it learning a lot, you know, and then have really just been uh, buckling down on business and trying to get everything straightened out for, for this fall. Um, I feel like it's probably the, the rigmarole that we're all, we're all looped into for, you know, to some extent, you know, so my, my life revolves around whitetail season in some way, shape or form in everything that I do, whether it's, you know, even if it's January or fall, I'm trying to adjust schedules and make sure like figure out when I'm going to be at working and not working. So, but in general, life is good, man. Just living and enjoying the, uh, enjoying the Southeast. I wish it wasn't so hot, but I feel like everybody's dealing with that these days. Yeah. It's been pretty hot and droughty here. Have you guys been in like the drought phase too, with not much rain? No, it's what's been strange is here in the Southeast, I feel like it's so scattered, but man, we have just been getting hellacious amounts of rain. It's been crazy rain, but the heat has not has been unrelenting as well. So it'll be, we'll be getting rain and it'll be 107. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's maximum humidity. 
um, and maximum maximum heat, you know, which doesn't bode very well for two mile hikes to go hang cameras. Uh, it's not not doesn't make summer scouting very enjoyable. No, I completely relate to that. That's kind of where I'm at now, where I just I try to plan one or two days a week to get out and do a little bit of scouting, get some more cameras out in these areas. And I just, it drains me by the time I'm done with that day, the next day, I'm just kind of laid up on the couch, not wanting to do much of anything, to be honest with you. I'm not the only one, man. It's like, I feel, I feel like it like just where it beats you down so much. And then you get all dehydrated and there's like not enough water I can drink. Like I can never drink enough water to feel like I just am coming back to the truck or the next day feel as good as I did when I started going out to hang cameras for a day. Let me ask you this. Do you take electrolytes or like pre-drink electrolytes or anything? Uh, I have started doing some more supplement stuff uh, with first form. And then with like, usually I'll do when I start, like I'll go I'll bring like a body armor with me and water is usually my go-to. So like I'll pick up that, I think it's pineapple, coconut body armor, shout out to body armor. And, uh, and I'll do that and and I'll take like a big thing of water and that, I mean, I, I don't feel terrible, but you can just feel like it just, I don't know, man, something about the humidity just wears you down. It definitely does. I've actually weighed myself before and after before, and I've came back like six to eight pounds lighter just from sweating that, you know, you sweat a gallon out, a gallon's eight pounds. So yeah, well, see, you guys got to be even worse up there because, you know, down here, at least what I'm doing in the home state here in North Carolina, it's mostly flatland. So you, you're in those, you're in those hills, like, like real climate hills, like, like me putting on five miles is a stroll in the park for you. Yeah, but you have, it's a lot thicker down there, right? So like you have to battle the sea of thickness, which is, in my opinion, I'd rather climb. I was down in Kentucky scouting a couple of weeks ago. And it was still hill country, but there were some flat areas and any flat spot down through like those creek bottoms was just impenetrable. It was so thick. And I just remember thinking like, I need to get back up on the ridges and walk up and over this stuff as opposed to walk directly through the middle of it. We definitely get that like in the summertime when leaf, you know, or up until leaves are off, the bottoms can be pretty thick here. I think the harder part is at least the type of stuff I hunt here is predominantly really swampy like real swampy and and it's like big bottomland country that's probably more similar to what you've probably heard guys talk about out in Arkansas or sometimes Alabama or Mississippi where you'll have you know thousands of yards of just straight wide open bottomland as far as you can see with intersparse thick cover like here and there and it's just wet like everything is wet and I don't know why specifically I do well in that type of habitat, but I just seem to, but man, it is a bear to scout. And there are times where you're like, okay, I have a thousand yards to walk and I'm going to do so through like ankle deep to shin deep mud <laughs> and your foot's just like suctioning in and out yeah. the entire way. And it's that, that can be pretty sucky, but, uh, I, I really try to be very cautious with my exertion in the summertime. Like I'm, I really don't spend that much time out there because it's just, it's not easy country to navigate. Uh, for summer scouting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's dive right into that, man. Uh, let's dive into your season and summer prep. So I know that you're a guy that, you know, you hunt in-state when you can, but you do a lot of traveling for work. And so you actually get the opportunity to hunt, you know, five, six, seven states a year. Let's just start out in-state with your in-state prep slash scouting approach. And then we're going to jump over to out-of-state after that. So if you don't mind, just what are you up to right now in-state that's going to help you out this season? So right now in-state, my focus is on identifying properties that either I ran cameras or saw good buck sign on last year, um, and then going to check you know, if there's any major changes that are occurring. So here in Southeast, a lot of times we have properties where the state will come in and do 
hog cuts or a lot of the public that I hunt is in or around urban areas, meaning like there's the public itself isn't urban, but it may be have a housing community that backs up to it. So the development is so fast that it changes the habitat and the deer struck the deer movement on a regular basis. So where I may avoid a lot of those big swampy bottoms that I'll use to scout or gather intel in the fall when it's easier to navigate them. Right now, I'm kind of just like when I'm out there looking at the boundaries and trying to identify paths of travel in and out. A lot of our public is so open. Once again, the public that I is so open. It's not very common that we have a ton of deer living right on the public. They send a hug all those boundaries on that the edge that like the ecotone edge that happens to folk that happens to be like just the difference in whatever habitat is between the mature timber on the public and the constantly changing private, even if it's like two acres or 10 acres or whatever. So finding where they're coming in and out is helpful because since there's so much urban around the public, they're living between the urban and the public, and then they're dropping into the public to feed. So if I can find historic sign where they're coming in and out of the public, it'll give me an idea as far as a spot to come back and check without me having to really dive really into the swamp and like just getting a world of hurt this time of the year. I, I try to save that for when it not only cools off, but the leaves start to drop and I know I'm going to be closer to season because by the time I get to hunt the home state, it's usually November or December. So the best way to summarize that is I'm planning I think a lot of guys hunt their home state and they're really aiming for September or October for opener. I'm doing all of my looking right now and all of my camera hangs. Everything is specifically for mid mid to late November and December. So even the cameras I'm hanging now are for movement then. The passive travel I'm looking for are for movement then. That just makes it so that when I come back, I've got a head start. You know, after traveling, I've got a head start on all those deer and where I think they'll be. Yeah. So when you actually get to target the deer in your home state, is that like rut time frame? Has the rut already passed? Our deer herd population here varies anywhere from 35 to 60 plus per square mile in the state of North Carolina. Like a lot of deer. Wow. Um, depending on where you are. So I've seen deer chasing as late as January and February after season and our season ends January 1. And I've seen it as early as October 25th, you know, October 20th. So usually we have three big rut windows. It's usually the last week of October, um, sometime around November 16th to the 21st. And then we have another rut window that, that pops in anywhere between December, I don't know, 12th to the 20th, somewhere in there. So you have kind of three target windows to hit that are based on in my experience, when the bulk of our does are coming in or out. And I try to focus predominantly on the first and last one. You know, that seems to be like when I get the most activity, both on cameras where I see the most sign being hit. November is super hit or miss. You can just strike gold. But since there's so many deer per square mile, a lot of our bucks just hold up. They just kind of get locked up and then they really don't have to go very far. So your your best bet here is catching them on that early doe where you can find an early early doe group um, that's coming in early uh, or a late doe group that's dropping real late. And that just, um, you know, unless it's like uh, your guest from, you know, a couple of weeks ago, unless it's like him where you're spreadsheeting everything, yeah, <laughs> you know, you just kind of have to be out there to get the experience to understand when does are getting chased and when they're not getting chased and when bucks are laying down sign, you know, so that you can kind of target certain areas because like our public here is pretty vast, not from a big chunk perspective. Like you guys have a uh, public that's just big, huge conglomerate pieces, right? Yeah. Like in Ohio, our public is 
all like Army Corps land for the most part. So it's scattered around lakes. So it's like 40 or 50,000 acres, but it feels like you're hunting 500,000 acres because every 30 acre block is totally different. So you could have one group of deer that comes in, you know, to estrus on October 28th and is getting chased hard. And then 10 miles south, you have another group of deer that comes in on November 7th. So you kind of have to just pick and choose where your best opportunities are based on where the most mature bucks have the highest likelihood of living. You're kind of seeing the same rut pattern we are here with, you know, we get a couple of does that come in early. The Majority of the does are coming into estrus like that mid-November time frame, early to mid-November. And the bucks really seem to just, in my opinion, they lock down pretty hard that time of year. And then that first part of December is actually when I get the best mature buck movement in the state of Ohio. And there's really not many guys here hunting Ohio at that point in time, but I have, I mean, hands down more mature bucks daylighting in the end of November, early December than early November. And it's not even close. It's not even in the ballpark. And I think that that's, I think you, you nailed it. It's, you know, the last does are coming in and they start to panic a little bit and they're really willing to put some miles in in daylight to try to locate that last doe. They'll push for that. And then, uh, our public here is a little different because it's so confined by, uh, development on the outskirts of the public that a lot of our deer can't really they can travel, but they typically stay close to whatever big wood block they can for, you know, just for preference. So usually when you find one, if he's chasing does, he's somewhere in that general area, even after he's done rutting. Like he's just moved ever so slightly and you can pick him up again. So, you know, I'll actually take that same intel when I find one that's that's chasing uh, in late season and I'll look for where I think he's going to bachelor back up, which is actually my favorite time to kill them in December. That window, when they go from chasing to being back in bachelor groups, where it's almost like they're back on that early season pattern, is I think the they're so consistent. Like I almost killed a buck this year on the second to last day of season because he was 100% nocturnal and just chasing does and doing his thing. And then the last three days of season, he just started hitting daylight with a forker and another and a small eight. And he was consistent every single day on food and bed just like early season, you know, it was just a matter of like his home range was way smaller though, because there's no leaves on the trees. Yeah. So it was extremely predictable to identify where he was and where he wasn't going. Yeah. I think if you, if you focus on that time of year and put some effort into it, like most people do early season or for the, you know, the pre-rut time frame, I think you can be really successful because of what you said. The food sources become limited. The leaf cover is limited. So they get pushed back into these little sanctuaries almost. And their patterns are typically pretty close to the same thing as long as they're not getting pressured, which normally that time of year, there's not a lot of pressure. So the the next question I have for you, you, you mentioned when you're scouting right now, you're looking for food sources. So traditionally, guys out in the summertime that are preparing for that first week are, at least in hill country, looking for like white oaks. That's a big thing. I'm assuming that that's not your main focus being you're not hunting until late November, December. So what food sources are you scouting for that are going to put you in the game later in the year? So th this is another oddball of here in, in the Southeast. Um, now I have different strategies. I have a different approach to if I'm out of state and I, I can kind of get into that in a second. But here at least our food source is oftentimes either just off on the private that borders our public or it's the public. And a lot of the times when it's the public, we have a ton of like mass bearing trees here. So lots of different variations of oaks. And it's in my experience, it's been extremely hard to pin down like the proverbial feed tree. So I'm looking when I'm here, I'm looking less for a specific feed tree. 
and more for the path of travel that is the safest for a buck to get to and from wherever he's betting. Most of the time, I can't hunt where he's betting. So I very rarely, if ever, I don't think I've in North Carolina, I've never killed a buck on on food uh, or even like within a close distance to food. I'm killing them in that transition between bed and food where I physically can't even see his bed or I can't even get close to it. But I know he has to come through here because it's the only place he can come through where he's safe. And that's because we have a lot of pressure or because of the fact that there's just such open and there's such visibility within the piece of public that I'm hunting. There is no other way that he can do that safely. If I can figure out what that area is now by just interpreting what hunter pressure historically looks like or by what just general recreator pressure looks like, you know, I can kind of to an extent forecast the areas that I think are going to be the safest paths of travel for that buck during season based on wind, based on cover, based on security. And then I can jump into when fall gets here, checking those areas, like speed scouting them and being like, okay, this area is lit up. This area, He's doing what I thought he was going to do when I saw this or when I identified this on the map. Now I can hunt this and then I incrementally hunt my way through that property. So I don't just like immediately go in to the nth degree I'll, I like to stage hunt places. I'll hunt the first day in the furthest away, and I'll just slowly work my way in day after day after day. And most of the time, both in-state and out-of-state, my harvest occurs on day between days four and seven, somewhere in that window, because I'm stage hunting my way in, and I'm just... I know he's there, but I'm just slowly eliminating areas as I go. And what that allows me to do is as I'm doing so every single day when I come back or every day when I leave the stand or come to the stand, I'm identifying new sign that he's leaving the night before. And it's just like allowing me to go very slowly puzzle piecing in the entire time. I think that he thinks he has the edge on me because I'm never sitting in the same spot twice. I've like sat in one and he knows where I'm there that day before. And then I think he's kind of expecting that. And I'm just like moving, I'm moving slow enough that I don't think he's aware that I'm creeping in on him. And all of a sudden I'm there and I can, I can make a move. That makes a ton of sense to me. That's an awesome strategy. And so you're building up this catalog throughout your years of scouting, where you're finding these areas of like the, where you believe that deer is going to travel, you know, based on all those factors you mentioned, and then you go and you speed scout them every year to verify if they're actually there due to, you know, the food source being hot, the bedding area being good because that food source is hot. And then you're finding that sign on that travel route you're hunting your way in. So uh, the, the thing it makes me think is that you're almost like the way you're stage hunting these areas, you're almost like uh, stacking that final kill location too. You know, like you hunt him here, he doesn't show up. Well, now he's going to avoid that spot the next couple of days because there's scent in there. And then you go a little bit further and you're almost just like pushing him into a corner. And then you, and that's, that makes sense with that five to six or four to six day you know, kill window you're seeing a lot of times because you're like getting that deer in the corner where you need him. And then you finally get that strike. The times where I find most of my success is late October or later in the year in general, and you know, either late November or December or in October. And typically the reason for that is because they just can either in October, they're focused on scrapes. So they're funneled down into these in the, you know, they're not necessarily using rut funnels yet, but they're focused on specific areas. And I can kind of target that and incrementally work my way through. Like a buck may have four or five big scrapes that he's checking on a regular basis, but only one or two of them he may hit in daylight. So then I can kind of work my way through where I think his main checking based on the wind direction, where I think his process is for checking does or what his process is for checking sign. And I can just, you know, pound through that. 
And in the late season, I'm looking for like that path to travel. Just because I know how my travel schedule works, I'm focusing on trying to be prepared that I'm going to have to make my kill in North Carolina in December every single year. If I get to hunt in October or November here, that's just a huge bonus. But December is when I have to, I know I like, that's when I'm expecting to have to kill. So my focus is on like this year, I was really keying in on trees that held their leaves longer, which was a big thing for me. So what I was seeing was there was a significant pattern in not just shrubs. Like I know everybody will be like, oh, well, you may have privet or you may have like kind of smaller shrubby bushes. Like, yes, they'll travel through that. But more so, if you look at like big open country, whether it's hill country or bottomland country, you know, there may be topographical variation, but the deer tend to do the same thing in both environments. If you have like here, we'll have a small line, let's say it's 75 yards long and it's all beech trees, small beech trees or young, like for whatever reason, there's a, a line of trees that was protected from the weather or whatever. And the leaves are all dead, but they're hanging on the trees. Those deer will walk that line of those leaves and like stay close to that line of trees. And you can use that to your advantage if you find that element in an area that you know he's going to travel through. You know, because like, let's say I know that within a certain area, there's 100 acres that this buck is favoring in the late season. And then within that 100 acres, it's mostly open, which is a common late season thing people run into. But then there's this small strip of whatever, you know, tree type that, you know, is in your area, whether it's cedars or whatever. You can see through it, but it is the only visible change in that environment that otherwise there is no other leaf cover holding on. Even if it's 10 feet or 15 feet up, he'll relate to that. Like at least that's been my experience. That is an absolutely awesome tip right there. I think that there's a ton to take away from that. I've seen something very similar, but just the way that you put it makes a ton of sense to me. I see uh, in Ohio, we have a ton of greenbrier up high on the ridges and especially like the south facing ridges. And I see a ton of travel right on that edge of that greenbrier late season when there's, you know, there's no other cover. Or if we do have pine groves, like a lot of our pine groves down here are planted, so they're in a straight line. I'll find that the later we get into season, when the leaf cover starts to fall, those become travel routes. And I find a bunch of sheds on the transition of the pines and the hardwoods. And it makes sense. They're just, they want some sort of security cover to travel with. It's such an awesome thing because it's so visual. Like you can just be walking through the woods, through open hardwoods, and you're like, well, look at how thick it looks over there. I'm going to head that direction because I know he's bedded off to my right, you know, to the north. I know there's food to the left. Why would he want to walk through these open hardwoods? That doesn't make any sense at all. And, you know, you get over there and you find your sign. So it actually rolls into the next part of this perfect as far as finding signs. So we're in season right now. Like what tells you to stop and hunt when you're going into that area? I know you have historical data that it's a good like travel corridor, but what do you need to see to make that first sit in that spot? So for me, and I hunt the same way both in and out of state with this, because I try to identify properties out of state that I think I can hunt with the the knowledge structure that I have built over the years that I've been kind of like doing the whole mobile hunting thing. So um, since I only have a, a short amount of time typically to hunt a given property, I want to stack the deck in my favor and know like that I know how to manipulate a, a property or manipulate what a, a landscape that I'm working with. So I'm not going in entirely cold, especially if I'm out of state. So I'm usually trying to find properties where I I expect the bucks to be bedded just off the property boundary or kind of right on the edge of it. And then they're traveling into or across the public to then get to another piece of private or they're traveling to like uh, an area where it's very odd for people to have to go. It doesn't necessarily have to be hard for people to get there. It's just a weird place. 
So, you know, I'm looking for something that's odd or weird. So the first thing that I'm looking for is like path of travel sign since I'm hunting specifically travel. Uh, and then I'm trying to backtrack that sign. So I talk a lot of the time about like directional rubs. There's like different tiers of rubs, right? So like you've got bedding area rubs, you've got uh, if a buck is on a hot doe and he's just leaving hot rubs where he's just following this hot doe around. And then you have rubs where it's like path of travel, where it's very obvious that he's not necessarily, it's almost like a scrape line, but they'll do it with rubs too. And you can identify that he's, especially if you're seeing it in windows of time that don't coincide with the rut, where he's just leaving sign coming to and from food and bedding. And you can look at that by understanding the historical significance of the rub. So maybe it's November, but you're seeing rubs from earlier, mid-October. You can isolate like, okay, on this piece of public, there's a lot of pressure. So he only has so many places where he can live safely. And I'm seeing sign both historical and fresh that's directional rub oriented that's telling me he's coming from my west or my east and he's going to whatever direction he's going to. So then I'll identify that directional travel, rubs on both sides of the trees, rubs on one side of the tree, and I'll backtrack that sign. And while I'm backtracking it, I'm looking for tracks on the ground. And I'm trying to identify the size of the track that's on the ground and whether it's a going and coming track or just a going track. Because in some places, pressure will be so significant that they'll go and come almost on the exact same path. But then in other places, they'll do an oval. Usually it's like a big kind of a half circle or a big loop. You can kind of map that whole process either through the sign that they're leaving or through their path of travel. And if you track them back, you can identify where they're exiting that public or entering into a piece of public that you don't want to go into because it's obviously where he's bedded based on topography or terrain or whatever, and then kind of set your plan of attack then. So when you say, what sign am I looking for? I'm looking for directional sign and then the sign that are obvious stopping points. So once I've identified his path of travel, then I'm going to say, hey, what's the most logical place for him to have a scrape based on the terrain uh, or based on his proximity to does? And I'll go check those areas. And if it's there, I'll start determining, okay, he's likely going to come check this or travel through here. Let's observation sit and stage hunt our way through that to try and either catch a glimpse of him or see other deer moving on the path of travel that I think he'll move on and then and move in for that. Even if I haven't seen him, I'll assume that he's going to move the same way and set up for that. You get to that area where you find the tracks or you, f you find a rub line. You mentioned finding that stopping point, you know, that area of congregation that you're trying to find where you can kill him. When you find that initial track or that initial rub line, are you typically working towards the bedding to find that stopping point? And, you know, that the way my head's spinning here, I'm thinking go towards the bedding so he doesn't smell your feet and your your ground scent. You know what I mean? But I just want to know your process there. I feel like it's like worthwhile to emphasize here that whether it's been by luck of the draw or just whatever my <laughs> fate has been, most every I'm hunting almost exclusively public and most of the public I'm hunting has some level of significance for high pressure. So um, this year I'm going to hunt a little bit more in Appalachia and the mountains where there's a, quite a bit less pressure. So I'm curious to see how this changes there. But a lot of the time, I think part of the reason this strategy works is because of the fact that those bucks, they're to an extent in a barrel where they have only a certain place that they can go and be. So it's not that I'm not concerned about my scent because I am or where I walk, but I know that even if I walk somewhere that he smells me, he still has to be where he is. There is no other option for him to be anywhere else than that versus the big national forest land uh, or big Appalachian mountain land or southern Ohio or stuff like that, where 
if you bump him or if he smells you, he can be gone and he's got 37 other ridges that he can go bet on. You know, for the most part, the, the worst thing that's going to happen here is I bump him and then he, you know, runs off into an area where he's going to get bumped again. And he's and I'm going to bump him a whole lot less disruptive than somebody who's going to bump him the other way. So he's, he's going to come back and be like, OK, this bed works. This bed is safe. I was bumped out of this the way I intended it to work. So if I'm scouting, I'm not opposed to scouting where I'll actually blow my wind to where I think he's bedded and let him filter off and then identify that sign and then come back in on an off wind where I think it's going to be advantageous for him to be there. So the short answer to that is I, I'm not worried about where I do and don't walk on our public because I think that he's going to be there regardless. I am, as you said, focusing on the bedding specifically because the food is so generalized that there's not really a way for me to identify this feed tree or this feed tree. You know, and I, that's what I would tell people is like, there's so much talk about feed trees in white oak flats. You don't have to know exactly where they're feeding to be successful. Like there are other keys to that door. You can focus on being successful by being really good at hunting sign and path of travel and just using your woodsmanship skills to to like extrapolate. Okay, what is this deer doing? Like, yes, they're smart, but they're still deer. They're still herd animals. They still have preferences, you know, and their their number one thing is is safety. That's like their number one thing, because here it never gets cold enough, like in Iowa or Illinois or maybe where you are, where it's so cold that they have to eat. And their number one thing is food. It's like that never exists here. Safety is always number one in most of the places I hunt. And I, I love that you differentiated between, you know, the smaller high pressured areas and the bigger pieces, because I do think they hunt a lot different. It makes all the sense in the world to me. And I see it a lot around areas that have a lot of hiker trails. Like those deer are a lot more willing to have scent around where if I'm on a lone ridge where I'm two miles from any sort of human intrusion and I leave a footpath or like I check a camera, I've seen deer come in and, you know, bug out because they smell my hand on my camera. On the flip side, I have those areas that you're talking about. So it just knowing that every area is not going to set up the exact same way when you go in there and being open-minded enough to say, hey, you know, I might have to hunt this totally different than I hunt the big hills because these deer will like they have to be here. You know, they're, it's a fish in a barrel thing where like, as long as I keep on him, eventually he's going to come back here. I think that's really important, man. I think that you know, a lot of people bump deer, especially like say that a guy hunts the hills or hunts this big terrain and he's used to when you bump a deer, it runs over a ridge or two and now you have to change your approach. Going to a spot like that, that's high pressure, that's smaller, you know, a lot of immediately I come to like a lot of these core pieces around the lakes. It just, they're, they are smaller. And, you know, we have them here in Ohio. I've seen them in Indiana. I know Missouri has them. All these states have these, these sort of smaller, high pressured pieces of public. I think if you get in some of those spots, you just have to, you have to stay on them like you're talking about. And it makes a lot of sense, but you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to bump a deer and say, okay, I'm just going to keep my pursuit going and eventually I'm going to catch up with them. So really glad you touched on that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So before we were recording today, uh, we were talking about something that I thought was really, really interesting. And I've actually had this conversation with myself a couple times, and that was uh, deleting your Onyx pins 
and starting over every year. And I really want you to dive into that because I was driving down the road yesterday and I looked at my Onyx and, you know, I told you back in the day how I actually reached the maximum allowable pins a couple times on Onyx. And, <laughs> yeah. and then I deleted a bunch of them, but I'm getting back up to, I don't know if the number is still what it used to be. I think it was 5,000 for a while, but um, I'm getting back up to the point where my map is just so messy. It just kind of drives me nuts. And it also gives me this like I love having all this data and all this historical sign marked and everything else, but a lot of that is five years old now. You know, I have rubs and scrapes marked from five years ago that were totally different deer that might be irrelevant now. So in my head, I'm like, you know, I have a lot of preconceived notions based on what my maps are telling me to do. You know, I mentioned to you, I go into an area sometimes and I go directly to where the bedding is or directly to the, where the white oak flats are. And I miss a lot of stuff. And I've really tried lately slowing down and disregarding what my map's telling me and just being a woodsman when I'm in the woods and trying to focus on that. And I feel like I've gained a lot of intel this year as far as scouting goes, just based off that, based off not staring at my hand the whole time. So I want you to run me through your, your thought process with deleting all those pins and how you've seen that affect your hunting style and your hunting approach throughout the years. I think uh, this conversation is probably going to get triggering for some people because that's uh, they get we got a lot of sensitive people out here about how many pins they have and and making sure that they they have every be every piece of intelligence that they can possibly gather. <laughs> but just because sign is in one place one year doesn't mean it's going to be there the next year. That's just the the hard truth. It, it's you know especially you know we'll we'll step away from the type of stuff that I hunt here in North Carolina for a second because our deer are kind of like we've talked about more fish in a barrel. So there's a little bit more consistency there that you can count on year over year. But we'll talk about Virginia or Minnesota or Illinois or wherever. Those states vary because the dominant buck changes frequently, you know, or the herd might change or something happens or there may be preferential habitat, but how that buck lays down sign with a buck with a different personality type or whatever that whole process is, you can't count on that on that sign every single year. So I found myself getting into bad habits when I left all my pins, because what I would do is I would look at the map based on what I had seen historically. I would predetermine my setups, even if I was going to go scout. So I would be in a situation where I'd be like, okay, I scouted this property last year. I know that there was a bunch of sign over here. So I'm definitely going to throw a sit there. Like, because I know there was a bunch of sign last year and sometimes it'd be a cold sit. Well, since a lot of the time I'm hunting, I'm, I've got four or five days, you don't have a sit to waste. So if I'm not basing where I go and how I place my setups based on sign that is right here and now, I'm just shooting myself in the foot. So I try to make sure that at every season, I identify key pieces of sign that I think are worthwhile of leaving up. So big hub scrapes. Um, that I know we're going to get hit year round. That's, I think that's something you should leave on your, uh, like on your Onyx. Big rubs, like big um, signpost rubs or things that I think people, deer will come back to. Anything that's really significant. But any of that travel route sign, any of that bedding sign, any of that stuff, other than generalizing that there's an area, like, hey, I know this 100 acres has sign. I'm getting rid of all those pins and I'm forcing myself to go back into that property and look at it the exact same way I did the first go around. The only difference is, is now that I know that it's capable of holding a mature buck. That's the big thing. That's what we're all trying to identify anyways. Like if you boil it down, we all just want to identify the 50 or 80 acres or 100 acres that we know has all of the intangible factors that will hold a mature buck. Even though most of the time we're, we're not, I mean, there are guys that shoot them out of the same tree year after year, but most of us are moving around a lot. 
So you're just keeping all these pins that one, bog down your phone and two, affect your woodsmanship because they dilute you from spending the time you need to do to learn year over year over year, which I think it deteriorates your collective knowledge. You rely on things that may not even exist this year and you don't give yourself the opportunity to learn and to and to basically have experiences with bucks that have entirely different structures or patterns of doing things, if that makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world to me. And I, th- I think that I would find myself somewhere in like the hybrid mindset of that where I want to keep, you know, even some of my betting stuff. And reason being is just chasing that like ultra high level deer. You know, if I'm on that approach, if I'm on the pursuit for like the ultra high level deer, I just have to cast a wide net. And so I just physically can't go into like, let's say 20 different locations a year and rescout them all, which I would love to do. But where I see this being really good is I have like four or five spots that I can count on the buck that I want to be there. He's going to be there. And for me, it's like delete those pins and just start over every year and go retouch up all those areas. You know, a lot of the guys that I've talked to that are just expert woodsmen and just killers are doing very similar things and they're rescouting those areas every single year. And I think like, you know, I think where I'd find myself is, like you said, generalized betting, you know, draw a line around and say, okay, that this is a thicket that in the past has held betting. Um, generalize the specific food sources that I want to go in and verify are hot or not that year. Like there is a white oak flat here. Don't delete, you know, I know that that's there. I need to go look at it. And I think that that's where people run into a lot of issues is assuming that a lot of these food sources are hot. And especially when you get into like the big wood situations, like if you assume a food source is hot, you're also assuming that bedding area is hot. Because what I've seen is if the food source is dead, the bedding area is completely, not all the time, but a lot of times they'll be vacated. Like the best bedding area one year might not be bedded in the entire year the following year because there's no food in that system. I think that there's there's a difference in it to clarify, at least I maybe the way my brain's working, like there's a difference in like fixed sign and variable sign or like fixed features and variable features. Right. So a fixed feature would be like an oak flat. Right. So that's worth noting. A fixed feature would be, um, you know, I, I would say a big hub scrape, like an identifiable car hood scrape in the middle of a big bowl that you've got camera pictures on and they're there every year. That's not what we're talking about removing, right? Like we're talking about removing all of that like minutia type sign that everybody marks on their phones and then influences them year over year over year. To clarify as well as like, I'm only, I'm doing this on properties that I know will have a buck or have a likelihood of having a buck year after year, like you specified out of that. But for places that I, whether it's out of state or in state that I might hunt once every three or four years, I'll leave those pins there. And then when I, and but I still rescout. I'm not going to go hunt until I rescout and verify that those pins are there, but they're only there to just tell me, okay, this is where I found sign previously, but those places are so few and far between because I can't hunt them consistently. So it's like, okay, the property that I hunted in Illinois, uh, the property that I hunted in Minnesota or Wisconsin, those places where I might not be back for three or four or five years, yeah, I'll leave some pins there and then I'll go re-scout. But my my go-tos where I know without fail that there's going to be a buck there that I want to shoot, I get rid of everything but the main pins that identify me like key features that I know aren't going to change year over year. Other than that, 
I don't want anything else cluttering up my map. I want to look at my map. When I look down at my phone and it's November 10th or December 2nd, the pins that I have there outside of my year over year pins, I want to be looking at a completely like, it's almost like looking at like a new treasure map. Every time I'm looking at it, I want it to be like, there's nothing else influencing my my thought process other than what I'm seeing from this year, from these hunts, because that helps me put that puzzle together on that buck versus, you know, and I, you could say like, oh, you could color coordinate and everything like that. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I, I can't trust myself. It's this way with like sweets. I can't have sugar in the house. You know, I can't trust way. myself to not want to go hunt that sign the same way I can't trust myself to have ice cream in the fridge because it's it just puts me in the position of being susceptible to making a poor decision when I know the right decision, you know? So, and then it's, I think we all get there. Like you ever get, you like hanging it, you like get your setup and you're hanging in a tree and you're like an hour into the sit and you're like, why the hell am I sitting here? It happens to me <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I, I look at the end of last season and it, man, if we would have had this talk before then, I, I love being a podcast host because I learn and I get like so much and I get all these new light bulbs that pop up all the time. But if, if we would have had this conversation, you know, I ended up, it took me until January to locate a buck last year and I got in there on that buck and man, that's a spot that I'm so intimate with. I, I bet you I have, I'll bet you in that, you know, thousand acre piece, I've got bare minimum 1500 pins. And oh my God. <laughs> so I locate you. It's ridiculous. And so I, but they're from year after year, right? Because I don't, I don't dilute, like I don't uh, filter them or anything. And so I'm in that spot and I had these preconceived notions of what this deer should be doing after I locate him. And it delayed my, the sits I should have been having by about a week. Like I wasted about a week of time based off of Intel from previous years and what I thought that deer was going to be doing. And when I finally got to the point where I scrapped that, I had him at 15, but it was a day too late. He didn't have antlers on his head. But if I would have just went in and just, you know, clean this, like clean the slate, clean, even as far as tactics, like if I would have just cleaned my head of all these tactics and all these built up preconceived notions that I have in my head of what a deer should do, I would have went in there with a totally different approach because I, in my head, I'm like, he's definitely bedded leeward. There's no doubt that he's bedded leeward. Well, he was bedded windward. And so I wasted, you know, four or five sits on the wrong side of the ridge, assuming that he was on that side, not trusting my gut. And there was a lot of ways to go in and verify things that I just overlooked. There's a big hiker trail that gets used all the time and has a ton of human scent on it that he has to cross to go to his food source. And so I could have went in there and just, you know, ran down that hiker trail and just looked for sign, look for tracks crossing that trail in the snow. Like there's so many things that I could have done that would have helped me out. And so looking at this now, there's like, there's just no doubt in my mind that the way that I think I see this going for me is I, I almost see myself color coding those very, those features that you were talking about that are going to be there every year. The hub scrapes, the oak flats and stuff like, uh, like green on the map. That way I can filter those back on, but I want to delete everything to start and go into these sections and scout it brand new. And then I want to go back in and turn that filter back on for the green pins and just overlay them and see how much has changed or if they're identical. And so let's get into that a little bit because I think that's a good tip. So on Onyx, I didn't know this until you mentioned it, but you can filter by by the year as well. You can folder content based on your year. So what that allows you to do is just move pins to a specific folder and then select hide all. 
And then you can hide all the pins within that specific folder so that then you have the ability to just remove pins off of your map. Now, the, if you do have just an absurd, absurdly robust number of pins, you know, you, your your app may run a little slower, which is also part of the reason that I, I like to keep everything trimmed down. But at the same time, it's for the most part, I think the big thing is just isolate your pins to a specific year over year folder or property folders, and then make sure that you're putting all those pins in a folder. Because one, if you do have a hunting buddy, it's easier to share. So you can share the folder with them. And two, you can remove them every, every year off of your map. And then you can go back and see, here are my 2021 pins. Here are my 2022 pins. Here are my 2023 pins. And then you can see maybe there are year over year patterns that exist out of that. And that might be something that I'm missing, you know, because we had talked about before the call, um, you know, I focus on being a minimalist a lot. And I think that this, a lot of this conversation is really a minimalist approach to Onyx, right? So it's a minimalist approach to mapping because the whole purpose of, of removing pins and focusing on new sign is, is to not allow yourself to be influenced by other things that otherwise you don't have to. So like my system is the exact same way when I hunt in the woods, I take just as many sticks as I need to get up the tree to where I think is a killable height. And I take nothing else. I have everything else attached to my stand. I try to have nothing on me other than my phone and my bow. Anything else is a potential like flight risk. Like it's it's a reason for me to not kill, whether it's a backpack or a snack or like I have guys look at me weird because I don't take water. And I'm like, I'm going back to the truck. I can, I can make it a, a, like a morning without water. You know, I'm not going to die. And, you know, I'm not going to, I don't need to eat. I'm, you know, at most hiking in two and a half miles. I know uh, based on my fitness level, I can go two and a half miles in and out. I'm going to be fine. So I would rather when I'm going into hunt, I'm in the game. I'm a hundred percent focused on being in the game. And I have no question in my mind that I have anything else that's going to influence me to be in any other way other than in the right here and the right now. And it's the same approach with my pins. I have to make sure that when I'm making decisions, I'm basing them off of what I know in this moment in time. Because if I don't, I'm jeopardizing the buck that I'm hunting today. Because I'm not hunting him as he was yesterday or or the year prior. Like I'm hunting him right now, you know? So, so like what, I mean, I, there's value in some historic sign, like in keeping some of that, like we've talked about and using your folders and things like that. But for the most part, for me, I tend to find value in approaching it fresh and new and trying to be like when use every bit of my woodsmanship skills to identify a buck that I want to harvest today and then uh, pursue him intentionally and relentlessly and until that I get him or until I just completely blow him out of the neighborhood. I want to jump over to your out of state approach, uh, being a guy that hunts as many states as anybody I know. So as far as like, let's get into a little bit of prep work, if you have any prep work and then how you're approaching scheduling, you know, anything to do with these out of state hunts. I'm usually out of state because of work. So there's somewhat of a territorial limitation. So it's typically within two hours of my work. So I'm not, I don't always get the chance to choose where I'm going. Right. So that being said, when I'm looking, let's say I'm looking within a two, a two hour window of places that I want to hunt. I specifically am looking for places that are in the middle of nowhere that are also small properties. And the reason I'm doing that is because I have historically found that the bigger the piece is, the more eyes it's going to attract. And it's not that there aren't going to be big deer there. There certainly are. But on a small time crunch, if I have a week to hunt, I would rather take a hundred acre piece that I can scout in an afternoon versus a 7,000 acre piece that's going to take me a half a season to hunt and identify. 
Now, it's not saying I can't go to the very back of that or find an overlooked spot on that piece. But one, there's inherently more pressure uh, because the property is bigger and people associate bigger properties with more opportunity. It's not always true in my experience. And two, the smaller properties, one, have a higher likelihood of potentially getting overlooked or they are like easier for me to do what we're talking about with this scouting and identify new sign. So I can cover X amount of ground very quickly in, in a couple hours and be like, okay, there's a buck here I want to hunt. And then once again, we're going back to that fish in a barrel thing. Like I want to be able to know that that buck is here or here at some point in time and give myself the highest likelihood of cross paths with him. So the best way for me to do that is to narrow him down as tight as I can possibly narrow him down. So out of state, I'm looking for properties let's say 500 acres or less. And I'm looking for properties that present some level of access challenge. Doesn't mean that they are far from the road. It just means that there's something that I'm going to have to do that's going to be very difficult to 90% of your hunters. Um, whether it's like an extremely steep access slope, like some of my favorite spots are in hill country right off the road, but it's like a sheer cliff straight up off the road. And I'll scale that thing uh, or I'll come in from way, way down an edge and come in and I'll be hunting right, right off of a road. But it's a spot that is just so hard to get to or hard to access the right way. Not necessarily the guys don't do it, but they have to do it the right way that it just gets overlooked. So in summary, I'm looking for places, one, that are small, that I can speed scout and identify if there's a mature buck there. And then I trust my woodsmanship skills to be able to kill him if I know he's there. And then two, I'm looking for places on those small properties or properties that have a high likelihood of difficult places to access or reach or difficult things that make it of a higher likelihood that a buck could survive there, whether it's very wet or very steep or etc. Man, the light bulbs in my head are going off like crazy. And it's just, that's so awesome, man. I, I think about Illinois and I went and scouted Illinois this spring. You know, the very typical thing to do was find the big chunks, right? Like I found the big chunks and I tried to break them down. And I do have a way of breaking down big chunks to like somewhat achieve the same thing you're trying to do. And my process with that is I, I very rarely ever go in the middle of these big chunks of public. I'm a corner hunter. I love hunting yep. the corners where they butt against the private. I'm kind of doing that fishbowl thing, especially if there's private ag, because you know the deer are going to be pushed into that little corner. And then, you know, especially if it's hard to access, like if you have to go up and down a couple steep ridges or cross a river or, you know, J hook into that spot, like come down the wrong side of the spine and then circle around the front and come back up against where you assume they're betting. I really like doing that. So I'm trying to achieve the basically the same thing you are. But I look at Illinois and this is a perfect example because I found this big chunk of public that set up and it had some good hubs in it, but it's a big chunk. And about a mile away to the north, there's all of these sub 100 acre, probably even down to 50 or 20 acre pieces that are landlocked, but there's a river that runs through there. And I went right to the big timber in the big areas, but I'm looking at it now and thinking about it now. And I'm like, I guarantee you those landlocked pieces in between all those big farm fields that look brushy are probably, they're almost impossible to access. You would have to have private permission or, or a kayak or a boat, which is going to eliminate 99.9% .9 of people immediately. But the deer kind of have that fishbowl effect going on because if you bump them out of there, they have to run across, you know, a thousand acres of wide open fields and fence rows to get to another little chunk of thicket. And so in my head, I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, I think I think I messed up. But I also I'm also like, maybe I'll just take the kayak when I go hunt it this year and just go throw a stab at it and just see if there's sign in there or anything else. 
Yeah, people, I think people get confused a lot of times. Like, I think they look at access to the wrong. I mean, there's a couple ways to look at access, but I think people think about like, oh, you, you like, I'm going to access the hardest to reach spot. Like, some of the places that I hunt are not hard to reach spots. Like, they're in, 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 in fact, like some of them are really easy to access spots, but they're hard to access the right way. Like they require you to put together a puzzle that is that is in the deer's favor exponentially. So whether whether it's like you coming in off the river, which I've seen some awesome river pieces that it's literally like the boat ramp you put in at the boat ramp and then you're staring at the public across there. It's like a 70 yard paddle. It takes zero time and you can hang right there and find good deer. You know, so it's it's more I think the word that I that I have like taken to using is like being unconventional in the way you look at properties, right? Like same thing applies with both private and with small and big chunks of public is looking for large adjoining chunks of property that are either not getting hunted or if they are getting hunted are there's only so much pressure that there's a likelihood that maybe if there's okay so for example let's say you're hunting a a 200 acre piece public and you notice that on the northeast corner or the northwest corner of that public there's an adjoining 600 acres and it's owned by one private landowner and if you do your homework you find out he's a 75 year old guy well the likelihood is he may have some family members that hunt but they probably aren't pressuring it that hard, depending on what state you're in. Like if it's in Illinois, they're probably rut hunters because that's usually or, you know, whatever. Most of those guys are hunting deer during the rut. So you can pretty much factor in that that those deer don't understand property lines just like they don't understand state lines. Right. So those deer that are on that. 700 acres that that old man has are also going to be on that 200 acres at some point. So what it does is it increases, there's a value percentage. So the value of that 200 acres just became twice as valuable as a 5,000 acre piece because it butts up to a sanctuary. Even if it's hunted, it's a sanctuary because maybe they're QDMing, you know, maybe they're managing, maybe they're doing something that, that you need to focus on. And you can do that on big pieces of public as well, where you can identify unhuntable areas like conservation at properties um big pieces of property and you can take it a step further and either call those like one of my favorite things to do is just call the landowner or get or go knock on their door and be like hey i'm not looking for hunting access i'm just curious do you hunt do you guys hunt and if it butts up the public and they're like no nah, we don't hunt we're just cattle ranchers and i look and like their property butts up to a piece of public that i've already identified as some sign on i'm like i know what property boundary i'm hunting next to yeah <laughs> you know because it's because all of a sudden that two now it may be the 200 acre piece that I'm hunting became 800 acres, but I can only hunt 200 of it, which I'm fine with. It just means that I need to narrow down that tight spot where he's coming in and out, you know? So, so it just, I think it's just about the perspective and the way that you look at those properties. So when I'm out of state, I'm looking for small to mid-sized places that are surrounded by good habitat or diverse habitat that I can then factor in, hey, those deer have to or more likely to travel through this public. The public is far enough away from major metropolitan areas or other spots where um, people are going to go to, or it's a piece that is in proximity to a big piece. And I'm like, oh, okay, this piece is 100 acres and it's entirely separated from this 10,000 acre piece. Everyone is for sure going to that piece. So let me go over here and check this corner and find this little back end side of things. And then that's like, it's about what I have time to work with, right? I can do something with the small piece. 
And, you know, it's, you could argue like, oh man, well, maybe there's a bigger buck on the big piece or you have more ground to roam. It's like, maybe, but I know I have a pretty good opportunity to kill on the small piece because I can actually work with it. Let's say I have two pieces of five that are 500 acres a piece. If one piece has two landowners that wrap around it, that are these big giant farms, I would much rather go over to that than I would the one that has 150 three acre properties with houses because the chances of having one of those people go back there and hunt or ride four wheelers or anything is is very high and so like i you know i've had some people send me maps and they send me a map and it's those little tiny parcels wrapped around the public and i'm like man i would probably i mean go check it out but i think you're probably going to be wasting your time because one of those hundred people are going to be in there hunting and they don't have to access as hard as you do they just drop down from their house and they're in the game immediately. So I, I did that with Kansas and ended up finding some good spots. And uh, the sanctuary thing is big too. You know, we haven't talked about that, I think, on the podcast at all up to this point. But the unhuntable land, you know, whether it's uh, even school property, like if you have a piece of public that butts up to school property where you know that that property is not getting hunted or girls, Girl Scout camps, you know, uh, there's so many things that there's these like micro sanctuaries and then there's public next to them. You can start picking those out. And the cool thing about Onyx is a lot of those are actually marked with, is it like a, a pink or a beige? There's there's like a different color for some of those unhuntable properties. It varies. They'll do, they have different like uh, visual markers for, uh, or visual cues that will highlight like, um, like just like a couple of them would be county owned land, like conservation owned land, um, land owned by um, you know, like a state agency or a state park, all, all of those places, you know, people look at and, and oftentimes there is people pressure there, but you have to remember there's no hunting pressure there. So that's a place that the deer are smart enough to be able to understand where they are and aren't getting hunted, where the risk of dying is. And a big buck can live on a state park and then or a conservation property or an easement and travel in and out of public. And you can hunt him like that the same way he can on a big property. That was such a huge note that you brought up there about talking about big pieces that surround little pieces, because not only are you you're looking the whole point of the little piece is to cut more people out. You want to cut your average everyday hunter out. And most of those guys are going to go to big pieces. So by looking at the little piece, you're going to go, okay, we've already narrowed down our our spectrum of guys who are going to be here. So my competition is less, which gives me a higher odds at a more mature deer. Now, how do we narrow that further down? Well, we're going to narrow it down further by saying, how few landowners can we find that adjoin this? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? And if we do find a property that is has very few actual landowners and is a small, a really small piece of property and has the habitat diversity that we're looking for, now you're like, bingo, all these check boxes are going off. And it's like, I can go scout there and in a very short amount of time, be able to identify whether there's a good buck there or not. And if you do, the nice thing about it is, let's say you spend some time map scouting, you can pick out three or four or five or six of those properties in a two or a three hour radius. And when you get to your out of state hunt, you can take two days and say, I'm going to hit all these properties on day one. I'm going to hit all these properties on day two. And then the remaining of your week, let's say you have three or four more days to hunt. You're focused on hunting a buck in a property that you know, that you feel confident about. And that is like, it's, it's the size of the piece that you would have had to have dialed in on, on a 10,000 acre piece, but it's, you already know it's there. Like you, you've narrowed that window down so much that you can actually make a move and execute on that deer. 
you know, within the given time that you have available, which I don't know, I can't preach that enough. Like there's been, a, there's so many good nuggets about that. It's got me fired up. I'm so, I'm going to, I'm going to be staring at Onyx tonight. Just, I know I am. I'm, <laughs> I'll spend a couple hours on it going through everything. Like, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to switch up this plan and I'm going to switch up this plan. And Illinois is such a great example, man. Cause I got in there and there's just, they have like uh Jeep trails on so much public yep. out there down in the Southern part of the state. And I just, I was struggling a lot. I'm like, man, this just, it, it just doesn't feel right to me. Like, yeah, we found some nuggets. We had to work really hard to find those nuggets. You know, we had to put in like 25 miles in two days or something like that to find like one good spot. And I just look back at it. I'm like, you know what? I think the way to do it from here on out is to find those smaller chunks. Like we, you know, stack all those factors, just drive out there and spend a couple hours on each one dissecting it, see if it inhabits a big deer or not. And if it does really try to focus on dialing those in. And it's just from an efficiency standpoint, like for me, the, the whole name of the game out of state is how efficient can you be in that seven to 10 day window that you have? You know, that's typically what people are going to get when they go out of state. And if, if you're wasting four days scouting a 10,000 acre chunk of public to find a decent spot, you just, now you've got two days to hunt it. You know yeah. what I mean? But like, if you can go in and in two hours, verify if a spot's good or not, because it's a hundred acres. Well, now you have six days to stage hunt that and figure out how to get a deer out of there. So it just well, makes so you, much sense. Yeah. And you got, you talked a lot about the spot within the spot. Like you, you, you talk about that a lot and that that's, that's what this whole process is about, right? Is it's like you're identifying a spot within a spot in a manageable size of property. You know this because you deal with the big ones in Ohio, but it's, it's applicable everywhere, right? So you may have a 5,000 acre piece of property or I let 5,000 acre piece. There may be six spots that you could kill a big buck. There's there's six good spots. Well, on that 200 acre piece of property, there's three or one or two. All you have to do is find that spot and then and then it's the spot within the spot. So that spot may be 12, 12 acres of that 100. And then it's a matter of you shifting trees 60 yards, 70 yards, 80 yards, 20 yards. And if you do move them or adjust them, um, like last year, the deer that I killed in Illinois, I was actually hunting a different side of the property. And then another public land hunter shot a buck and he blew up that whole side of the property trying to find that deer. And it pushed all the deer to a different side of the property. But since the property was small, I was able to be like, okay, well, they are either going to be on private or if they're going to use the property, they're only going to use this. So I have like a hundred acre barrel to find them in, (laughs) you know? So then it's a matter of me being like, okay, I know they've got to be within this zone. And if they're in this zone, I can find them. I just have to like trust my gut and trust the sign that I'm going to find because when they shift to an area, whether it's because I push them there or somebody else does, the reality is, is they're still going to, they're going to lay down new sign. So if they haven't been there, so then, then you go back to your woodsmanship skills and you go, okay, now I'm not looking at pins. I'm looking at what I'm seeing. And then the whole thing kind of comes full circle where you're, you're in an area that's big enough for you to manipulate and big enough for you to actually work with on the small amount of time that you have. And then you're reading and reacting. I was a big football guy. So, so that was a big thing. Our coaches always used to tell us to read and react, (laughs) you know? So it's the same thing with, with deer hunting. There's so many good parallels between deer hunting and football is it's like, you need to be focused on like reading the sign and then reacting to the sign, not trying to like preemptively put the puzzle together before you know what's going on or assuming that you already know what's going on, you know, and then just keeping that within what you can get your arms around. And that's different for everybody. You know, you might have a guy that's Nathan Killen or somebody who could cover way more ground than I can. And he's a talented mountain hunter and he can hunt 
two or 4,000 acres the way that I hunt 200 acres, you know, but I know what my, I know my limitations and I know what I need to be successful. And I'm honest with myself about that. And then I apply that to my approach. If I need to extend above that, then I will incrementally, but not in a way that's detrimental to my success. So, Hey man, this has been a great conversation. I have one last thing to wrap this up. Um, just want to get into being a guy that travels, you know, all year and hunts all these out of state hunts, just some basic travel tips for the whitetail hunters and things that you've oh, picked man. up throughout the years. Uh, I still struggle with this a lot, to be honest with you. So I'm excited for this. I learned pretty quick that setting up and breaking down a tent was annoying. So figure out a way to sleep in your car, whether it's like, you know, making your back seat sleepable or whatever, um, and then maximizing space. So for me, the same thing with like being a minimalist with your stand and your gear and your onyx is like take that approach to your vehicle because the biggest thing that is impactful for me is disorganization throws off all of my stuff. So my truck is what I'm living out of. Everything has to have a place. And if it doesn't have a place, it if I get, let's say I need my release. If I don't do the same thing with my release every single day and I'm going to go into hunt for an afternoon or I need to target practice and it takes me 45 minutes to find it and I'm frustrated, that bleeds into other aspects of my time because it's my blood pressure's up, I'm stressed, I'm frustrated, I'm not thinking clearly, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like I have I like my bow like mounts on the back of my seat like when I'm traveling, so it minimizes the space that I need. When I'm hunting, my bow rides in my passenger seat. It is right there. It is there with my binos. My release goes in the exact same place every single time on the bottom of my riser. Um, there is I have zero variation to that. My clothing is all stored exactly the same way. I store my hunting clothing in my deck system. I store my personal clothing in a backpack that sits in the back seat. I hang up my down and and like more heavier jackets and coats on the hanger in the back. Like everything has a very specific place because of the fact that the whole purpose is to eliminate me getting frustrated when I don't need to be frustrated. Uh, and the same thing applies to like why I sleep in my truck. If I have to wake up and it's 4 a.m. or maybe I sleep a little too long or maybe I maybe I'm right on time and I crawl out of this tent, even if it's a tent that I can pop up and pop down in a minute or two, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. When you get three or four or five days in and you're grinding and you're hiking in and out of this piece of public that's, you know, however big or however long your hike is, it's like the old adage is like time is money, but it's not money that you're competing for. It's your ability to like tolerate the stresses of being out of state. Mm -hmm. So, so that I would say, look at your system and build it so that you can so that everything is like efficient for you and and minimizes the impact that you have to get to access to your gear. Like you should be able to pull off the side of the road, step out, put your boots on, throw a couple of layers on, grab your stand or your saddle platform or whatever, right out of one spot, not have to assemble anything, grab your bow and go into the woods. From the time I wake up to the time that I'm driving my truck, I can be woke up out of my truck and driving in three minutes. I don't, I, and some guys are going to crucify me for this, but I don't, I don't drink coffee when I'm out of state. I'm exclusively on like cold, either cold coffees in the morning in a cooler or energy drinks because I don't want to have time. To, I don't have time to make it. Like, I don't want to spend time. My mind is focused on, on, on hunting. So I, you know, I'm not wasting time. There's nothing to me that is worse than me not hunting when I'm out of state. So anything that takes away from that. Yeah. I, I feel like I get behind some of the mornings out there and it's because of what you said, like you lose, if you lose five minutes 
you know, because you're trying to sleep as long as possible because you're worn out. And so like you set your alarm, you're like, okay, the latest I could possibly wake up is this time. You get woke up, you lose five minutes because you can't find a release or you can't find something yep. and or you have to pack up a tent. And now I'm behind. And when I get behind doing this, I get in a rush. And when I get in a rush, I make a bunch of mistakes. And so like for me, it's just so important to just make sure that I'm you have to like keep yourself level headed to be successful all the time. Because I'm like you, like if that stress level gets too high with all these little things, it bleeds into my entire day and I'll make the wrong setup. I'll make the wrong move. Like I, it's it's a out of state hunts are very challenging and it's almost more of like a, a mental aspect than anything else, to be honest with you. But I do think it comes back to the fundamentals and the foundations, which is the biggest one right off the bat is being prepared, and then being organized. Like your organization taking it a step further is much better than mine. And I'm going to adopt that process this year, you know, being a guy that normally I'll hunt one or two out-of-state hunts. Well, this year I'm going to hunt a minimum of five out-of-state hunts. And so being gone a lot, being on the road a lot, like organization is going to be key to not drive myself mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, dude, it's, it's so key. It's like, and, and it's the thing too, like you're same thing with your stand, man. Like you're sacrificing, you have to be okay with sacrificing luxury. Like I would love to wake up in the morning and have a hot cup of coffee and ease into my hunt and have like a honey bun that I microwaved up and everything is great and like warm it. But it's like the same thing with my stand and sticks. I like, I would love to have this or this, but it's like, no, I'm there to work. Like guys always ask like, oh, do you run, you know, a taller seat post or a bigger seat or do you run this or do you run that? And it's like, no, I run it exactly how the product was intended to be run. I have it quieted down and I run it because I know that it works, not because I'm going to be comfortable, but because I'm there to do a job. Like, and I, it feels weird talking about hunting like that because hunting isn't a job, but it's like you're looking to accomplish a goal. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. You know, so everything that you're doing should be advantageous to that goal. And anything that takes away from that goal is only going to hinder you from being successful. I wish I had the time to like have a big set tent and just set it up and, you know, have this huge, like big canvas thing or yeah. whatever. But it's like, you know, it'd be a whole lot more comfortable than sleeping in the topper of my Tacoma as the six foot three guy where my feet are like pressing against the windows yeah. and my head's up here. But, but, but I know that in the morning, like, I'm the first one out of, like, I can be late getting out of bed and be the first one out of camp. Cool, man. I think that this has been a great conversation. I have taken away a ton of good information that I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to be staring at my maps tonight and going through my gear, like, all right, getting rid of this, scrapping this, scrapping this. But I really do think there's a ton to take away here, man. Thank you for coming on. Where can people follow along with what you guys got going on? Find out more about you. Thanks, man. So you can follow me at the Lyshen on Instagram. That's T-H-E-L-I-S-H-E-N on Instagram. Uh, my business's name, we do outdoor adventure, photo and video film work for some of the best brands in the business. You can find us at Land Limited or uh, on the at Outdoor Creatives uh, co-op channel on Instagram as well. So stay involved with us there. Feel free to reach out to me at any time. I love having conversations about deer hunting and whitetails and strategy. Um, I'm always here to talk. Hey, I saw you were on a, a new podcast too, right? Like you were recording an episode a couple of days ago. Um, we, we were, so we actually just launched the outdoor creators podcast. So for everybody that's out right now, that is interested in being in the photo video or film space or being a creative in the outdoor space, 
uh, myself and my business partner and our good friend, Adam, who's been there with us since the beginning, are doing our best to share knowledge and information and create this open forum conversation podcast where people interested in being a creative in the outdoor community, whether it's just filming your hunts or whether it's actually getting the, getting into you know real commercial production work, you have a resource now to go and just hear good, wholesome conversations with people who are trying to tell you the kind of God's honest truth and not, and not just like run you up a tree, um, you know, or tell you how that was. Like we just recorded one yesterday with uh, a guest that's worked at three of the biggest hunting brands in the country to get the perspective of what it's like being a marketing director in the hunt space and what it's like working with photographers. So a lot of cool conversations. Uh, if you guys want to go listen to that, you can tune into Outdoor Creatives on Spotify. Awesome. Well, sounds good, man. Thank you once again for hopping on today's show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right, everybody. That is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you could, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,